Hello, and welcome to World of Warbirds. I'm Brian Pierce. Are you a World of Warbirds fan? If so, please help the podcast keep going by supporting it through PayPal at WOWB17. Even just a few bucks arriving in my PayPal account just gives me a thrill and helps give me a little bit more encouragement to get back to research, writing, and recording. Firstly, I have a question. Before my hiatus, I would release the episode and then post a bunch of pictures on the World of Warbirds Facebook page. I didn't do that for the Betty episode, and I'll tell you why. I never really knew if many of my listeners actually headed over there to look at the images. And it just adds that extra bit of workload to my already pretty full schedule. So, here's the question. Do you appreciate the images? Or does it not really matter? Please let me know. If there's lots of demand, I'll keep at it. But if not, I'll just let it go. There's also been some demand for a YouTube channel too, and I have reserved the name, but I do have to be careful about overextending myself. Secondly, I can't believe how rude I was last episode in neglecting to thank folks who have sent in support via PayPal. Canadians have this reputation for being polite, and my mom always taught me to say thank you, and so here goes. Chris Dobbs, Torborn Erickson, Harold Jones, Doug Imus, Luke Cole, and Tyler Dean. Thank you, and every little bit helps. But today's episode comes from a suggestion from Robbie Lockett. Now, do some warbird names get on your nerves? I have a few. The first is the Fairy Battle. Firstly, I know that Fairy is the family name of the founder, but it still makes me think of Tinkerbell with little wings and pixie dust and all that. I could forgive that, but then calling the plane Battle is just weird. It's the thing that it does. It's like naming a car the Ford Drive or the Hyundai Road Trip. It just trips me up when I say it. Then there's the Hawker Hind and Hart. Both are actually deer, I know, but hind makes me think of hindquarters like butt or ass. And heart is like Valentine's or I love you or the heart hand signal that the kids make nowadays. Funny, all these annoying names are British. Just as is the bowfighter. Maybe living in a place where the dominant language is French makes it weird for me. Beau means beautiful or handsome or good, all of which are a little cringy, as my kids would say, when added to fighter. So, I've always been a little prejudiced against this warbird, but I promise to push that aside and not discriminate and look at this British fighter with fresh eyes. Design and Development So, as Tom Jones might say, it's not unusual for us to say that our featured warbird was a development from a previous aircraft. It's probably the norm, but this time the Bowfighter was actually a third generation evolution. 
In order to try to not get too lost in the weeds, I'm going to try to keep the evolution simple. I'm going to try. Firstly, although we have spoken of Bristol engines many times, we have never talked about the Bristol Aeroplane Company, and that is a shame that will be corrected forthwith. It is one of the oldest aviation companies in the world, having been founded in February 1910 by Sir George White, his son Stanley, and his brother Samuel. Sir George White was the chairman of the Bristol Tramways and Carriage Company, and after running into and chatting it up with Wilbur Wright the year before, White saw a business opportunity in this flying machine thingy. The original name of the company was the British and Colonial Aeroplane Company Limited. White wanted to avoid using the Bristol name because at that point, newfangled airplanes were risky and he wanted to keep the two concerns separate. During the First World War, the company did well and built a variety of scout and fighter aircraft. During the interwar period, the company changed its name to Bristol as it seemed that the aviation wasn't just a passing fancy. Around that same time, the company picked up the Cosmos Engineering Company, which was a bankrupt airplane engine company. Everything was now well-placed for both sides of the company, aircraft and engine, for the push for rearmament in the mid-1930s. It was at this time when Bristol released the Blenheim, which was a mid-wing, twin-engine medium bomber. And although we don't hear about it much, it was an incredibly successful aircraft, which, when it became obsolete in one way, would slide into a different role and just keep on a-truckin'. When they became outpaced at being a day bomber, they switched to night, or reconnaissance, or patrol, or training. And they weren't just operated by the UK, they were used by the Finns, the Yugoslavs, the Australians, and the Canadians, amongst others. They were actually built under license in Canada by Fairchild Aircraft, where they were known as Bolingbrooks. Over 4,000 examples of all variants were built. So, when an Air Ministry specification for a land-based twin-engined torpedo bomber was issued, Bristol decided that the Blenheim was a good place to start. They stretched the design, added length to the wings and the fuselage, and added space for a semi-recessed torpedo. To deal with the greater weight, Bristol initially chose their Perseus engine, and then up-engined the aircraft with a Bristol Taurus engine. The new plane was named after the Duke of Beaufort, over 1,000 were built in the UK, and 700 were built in Australia by the government's Department of Aircraft Production, or DAP. As such, these were known as DAP, or is it DAP? I don't know. Beauforts, when they flew with the Royal Australian Air Force in the Pacific. Beauforts flew with the Royal Air Force Coastal Command, and the Royal Navy Fleet Air Arm, operating as torpedo and conventional bombers and mine layers until 1942. Following that, they became trainers. 
1938, leaders within the Bristol Company had the foresight to decide that the RAF would soon be needing a long-range fighter aircraft which would be able to deliver heavy weaponry. They decided to fund the project on their own, and they put engineer Leslie Fries in charge of it. If that name is familiar, yes, he is the guy who came up with the slotted aileron, which counteracts adverse yaw during turns. It's pretty fundamental in aircraft design and bears his name, the Freeze Aileron. Again, instead of starting from scratch, Freeze decided to base the new fighter on the proven design of the Beaufort, so that many of the manufacturing jigs would be common. He went as far as yanking a half-finished Beaufort out of the production line in order to create the new fighter's prototype. And finally, that brings us to... Prototypes. Fries and his team decided that the slightly pokey Beaufort needed more power if it was going to act like a fighter. So they switched out the 1,000 horsepower Bristol Taurus engines and swapped in... 1,500 Bristol Hercules engines. These engines turned a bigger prop, so the engines had to be moved mid-wing instead of underslung, as was on the Beaufort, so that there would be enough clearance with the ground. As this design work was going on, the RAF was also deciding that they would be needing a twin-engined heavy fighter. They already were looking at the Westland Whirlwind, but decided that it might be good to have a backup with the Beaufort-type fighter. So although they thought that the Bristol model might be too fat, they authorized the construction of four prototypes. As the name Beaufort Cannon Fighter was a bit of a mouthful, it was decided to shorten it down to Bowfighter. So that's where the name comes from. The huge engines with their extra power caused excessive vibration, and so longer and more flexible struts were used to mount the engines, which extended from out the front of the wings. This controlled the shaking, but made the aircraft nose heavy. So the CFG was moved back by shortening the nose. Actually, the space in the nose of the Beaufort had been for a bombardier who was no longer needed in the fighter. In the end, the plane ended up looking somewhat stubby, but with the two big engines and two big props way out in front, I think it looks muscular. The wings, control surfaces, landing gear, and much of the fuselage was identical to those of the Beaufort. As previously said, the bomb aimer's station was eliminated, as was the rear gunner's position. This left the pilot in the cockpit, and a navigator-slash-radar operator behind him under a small Perspex bubble window. So the kick-ass-looking bowfighter had a kick-ass armament. Although it had no bomb bay, bombs could be carried externally. Four 20mm Hispano cannons were located in the lower fuselage, and these were fed by 60-round drums. The radar operator had to crawl up to the front to change the ammunition drums. This turned out to be a truly sucky job, and the system was later changed 
to a belt feed system. Out on the wings were six 303-inch Browning machine guns. Weirdly enough, there were four on the starboard side and two on the port side to allow for the landing light, which was also on the port side. When all these guns were firing, the recoil could reduce the speed of the aircraft by around 25 knots. In July 1939, the first prototype took its maiden flight only eight months after work had started. This crazy speed is explained by the use of so many Beaufort designs and components. Tinkering improved the design by stiffening the elevator controls, enlarging the fin area, and lengthening the main oleo strut and landing gear to handle hard landings. With the other prototypes, there was experimentation on different armament configurations, such as a dual 40mm cannon replacing the 20mm cannon guns, and a bowfighter with a Bolton Paul built four gun turret. Also, due to anxiety over future engine supply, there was also experimentation with different power plants by installing some bowfighters with Merlin engines. With the magical mystique of the Merlin, you'd think that those bows would be the best. But no, in-flight testing found that they were underpowered, with a hard and tricky swing to the left on takeoffs and landings, which led to many accidents. They built about 300 Merlin-powered bows, and about a third of these were lost to accidents. But, failed experiments aside, the Air Ministry was very happy with the Bowfighter and began ordering as many as they could get. The construction of as many Bowfighters as possible became a major goal, with the Ministry of Aircraft Production getting involved to help set up the subcontracting of the major sections of the aircraft and establishing other factories to perform final assembly. One of these was run by the Ferry Aviation Company, and the other was run by Bristol itself. One reason for all the demand was that the Bowfighter was one of the few aircraft capable of carrying the early and heavy airborne interception radar, and still maintain a fighter's performance. Putting together this speed, power, radar, and heavy armament, the Bow was almost accidentally a perfect night fighter. In the end, almost 6,000 Bowfighters were built, and just like her older sister, the Beaufort, several hundred were built in Australia. These Bowfighters were built by the Australian Department of Aircraft Production and were known as the Mark 21. Operational History So the idea of developing the Bowfighter as a heavy fighter backup to the Westland Whirlwind really panned out when the Whirlwind was cancelled due to production problems with its Rolls-Royce Peregrine engines. It's really too bad as the Whirlwind was a cool looking aircraft but luckily the aircraft had the bow and began equipping 25, 29, 219 and 604 squadrons with that in September 1940. In October, the bow got its first kill when it knocked down a Dornier DO-17. Soon after, with the desperate need for a night fighter, 
field modifications were made to mate radar sets with the bow. As was said previously, the aircraft type had the power to carry the heavy sets and also the space to place the bulky units. This experiment was a great success, and by the spring of the following year, both fighters were sometimes responsible for knocking down half of the Luwafa bombers shot down, with the other half being claimed by AA. Both fighters would continue in this role until the de Havilland Mosquitoes took over night fighting duties in mid to late 1942. During this transition, other jobs were being found for the bow, such as attacks on shipping, ground attack, and interdiction. Usually in these episodes, we hear about U.S. aircraft being accepted by the RAF or other Allied Air Forces. It says something about the bow that the United States Army Air Forces, USAAF, received 100 bow fighters and used these to equip the 414th, 415th, 416th, and 417th night fighter squadrons. These squadrons had trained on P-70 night fighters, which were converted Douglas A-20 Havocs. But they flew the British bowfighters until the Northrop P-61 Black Widow fighters began arriving in very late 1944. Even with the arrival of the Black Widows, the USAAF would continue to fly their bowfighters in night operations until very, very late in the war. RAF Coastal Command began to look very enviously at the Bowfighter in 1941, as its Beauforts and Blenheim aircraft were getting very long in the tooth. In order to meet the increased range demands of Coastal Command, the Mark 1C was designed with long-range fuel tanks. Demand was very urgent for these long-range fighters, but the intended additional wing fuel tanks were not yet available. What to do? Bristol, which seems to be the masters of improvisation, installed 50-gallon tanks from the Vickers Wellington bombers on the floor between the cannon bays for the first series of Coastal Command bows. Coastal Command 252 and 272 squadrons equipped with bowfighters were sent to Malta and did very well. In June 1941, they claimed the destruction of 49 enemy kills and the damaging of 42 more. In mid-1942, the bowfighter Mark 6C arrived, which was equipped with fittings for carrying an externally mounted torpedo. In April 1943, these turbos, as they were called, sank their first two merchant ships off of Norway. Speaking of Norway... Two years previously, in late 1941, bowfighters had played a role in Operation Archery when British commandos landed on occupied Norwegian island of Vagsoy in order to destroy fish oil production facilities that were being used by the Germans to make explosives. The bows provided copious suppressing fire while the commandos landed. Rock bows were bowfighters that carried a variety of HVARs, or high-velocity aircraft rockets, mounted under the wings. One very effective technique was sending a large formation of bowfighters to attack enemy shipping, 
with rock bows distracting the ship's AA fire with cannon and rockets, while the torbos swooped in at very low level with torpedoes for the coup de grace. Bullfighters performed long-range patrols of the Bay of Biscay, hunting for JU-88 and Fucka Wolf FW-200 Condors, who were in turn hunting for Allied shipping. The hunters had become the hunted. Bullfighters also flew for the British 8th Army during the Western Desert Campaign in the ground support role. Bullfighters operated in Asia and the Pacific from mid-1942. This is where supposedly Japanese soldiers called it, in quotes, whispering death due to its quiet engines. The reason for this quiet engine reputation was that the Hercules engines used sleeve valves rather than the noisy poppet valves. And on the attack, this reduced noise level was most apparent from the front of the incoming attacker. One of George S. Patton's favorite quotes was attributed to Frederick the Great, but said in French, L'audace, l'audace, toujours l'audace. In English, this is audacity, audacity, always audacity. In modern street language, this might be translated to be ballsy AF. This quote, in whatever language, certainly describes the action of Group Captain Alfred Kitchener Gatward, DSO, DFC, AE, who went by the name Ken Gatward. In the spring of 1942, it was ascertained by the Special Operations Executive, SOE, that the German occupiers of France held a parade down the Champs-Élysées in Paris every day between 12.15 and 12.45. The commander-in-chief of Coastal Command thought it would be a jolly propaganda boon and a morale boost to the French if they dropped a French tricolore or flag over the Arc de Triomphe in the middle of the occupier's little parade. This slightly wackadoo mission was presented to Flight Lieutenant Ken Goward, who had already done plenty of low-level daylight attacks, to see how he felt about taking a shot at it. Gatward and his navigator, Sergeant Gilbert George Fern, were game, and so planning for what became known as Operation Squabble began. The idea was to fly at very low level down the Champs-Élysées, ruin the parade by strafing it, and if that didn't work, then hit the Kriegsmarine headquarters, which was based in the former French naval ministry, Ministère de la Marine. Then the flag would be dropped. In preparation, they obtained two French flags and set them up with little iron weights so that they would fall properly. Then they tested the unfurling procedure with a little scientific experiment of throwing one of them off the hangar roof. They simulated the flight with map study exercises of France and Paris, and practiced their low-level attacking by strafing a shipwreck in the channel. They were as ready as they were going to be. Now the weather just had to play along. On the 13th of May 1942, the weather did not play along, and Gatward Fern and their bow fighter had to turn back. 
They tried again the following month, and on the 12th of June, 1942, they took off at 11.29 from RAF Authority Island. The weather certainly looked iffy at the start, as they lifted off in heavy rain and encountered 10 tenths cloud at 2,000 feet with heavy precip all the way across the channel. But when they crossed the French coast 20 minutes later, the cloud was beginning to thin out, and soon they were zooming along in bright sunshine. They skimmed over the suburbs of Paris and circled the Eiffel Tower at 12.27 hours. They picked up a little light flak and also had a bird strike in the right engine radiator. They then turned for the Champs-Élysées. Turns out there was no parade, but Fern released the first tricolore down the flare chute over the Arc de Triomphe. Gatward then switched to Plan B attack and attacked the Ministère de la Marine building, hitting the building with 20mm cannon shells and sending the German sentries running for cover. Fern then dropped the second tricolore. It was time to get out of Dodge, so Gatward turned for home base and landed at 13.53 hours. The dead French crow was still in the starboard radiator. It was given proper funeral rites at the airfield. Gatward was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross, DFC, and Fern got the Distinguished Flying Medal, DFM. I've looked but I can find no info on what happened to the flags that were dropped. There don't seem to be any airworthy bows left, but there are several on display in Australia, including one at the Australian National Aviation Museum near Melbourne. There is a bowfighter displayed at the Royal Air Force Museum in London, and another under restoration at the National Museum of Flight at East Fortune Airfield, east of Edinburgh. There is a bowfighter at the National Museum of the United States Air Force in Dayton, Ohio. Although this bow actually flew in combat in the Southwest Pacific by 31 Squadron Royal Australian Air Force, it is displayed as Nightmare, which was a USAAF bowfighter flown by Captain Harold Osperger, commander of the 415th Night Fighter Squadron. Closer to me is a bowfighter, serial number... RD-867, which is in storage at the Canadian Aviation Museum awaiting restoration. I wonder if they'd let me see it. <laughs>